0: We read just a little bit ago from Psalm 19, and I mentioned that at that time that there are three main movements through that passage. In the first section it talks about creation and how creation pours forth praise of the glory of God. Creation speaks, it says something about God's glory and His greatness. As it moves forward in Psalm 19, he turns his attention from creation to revelation. Revelation speaks, special revelation. The word of God speaks forth something about His glory. It says something about who God is as a person in all of His perfections and all of His greatness and all of His goodness. And then the last section is a response of man, the redeemed human being. Creation speaks, revelation speaks, therefore, redemption ought to speak. It ought to speak forth the glory of God. And therefore he prays at the end, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He says, Your creation speaks forth your praise. Your revelation speaks forth your praise. God, make that true of me. Well, we're continuing in our series in the book of Ephesians. Last week, we saw Paul continue in his exhortation that we should walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ. Walking in a manner worthy of our calling requires a new way of thinking. We are to reject the futility of unbelief. Paul says, do not continue to think the way you used to when you were an unbeliever. The end of that way of thinking is death. He says, that's not the way you've learned Christ. By faith, you've come to know the one who is the way and the truth and the life. By faith, you have been given new life in him. In him, you've cast aside the old self. You've put on the new self. And you are being renewed day by day. One author said it this way. God is not progressively making new creations out of believers. Believers are those whom he has already made new creations. He quotes Second Corinthians five seventeen: If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. He says this is Paul's primary concern in Romans 6, where he carefully describes a believer's newness of life. In fact, he goes on to say the only reliable evidence of a person's being saved is not the past experience of receiving Christ, but a present life that reflects Christ. Quote. New life ought to produce a new kind of living. You know that a person has a new life of Christ within them by how they live today. It is ultimately not because of their profession alone. Many profess faith in Christ. Many claim to know Jesus Christ as Lord. The evidence of your profession, though, is how you live, or in Paul's words, how you walk. Because we are one body in Christ, members of one another, a new race of humanity, we are the family of God. How we live will have a direct impact on one another. As I've said before, as we continue through the rest of this letter, Paul's thoughts will circulate around this idea of what it means to walk. And particularly how our walk ought to affect one another in the body of Christ. This next section in general settles on the idea of the truth. We are to walk in the truth. We are to walk in the truth of the new life that we have in Christ. Much of what he says in this next section, again, more specifically regards how we think and speak to one another in light of the truth. Walk in truth with one another for the glory of God. That's the point of this next section. I'll read the section briefly for us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. And then we'll take a look at each point. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Father, again, we come before you. We come before your word. As Jesus prayed, we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. We pray that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively, as we come before your word, let them be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, you who are our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, we are to walk in the truth. And Paul's going to give us a number of points here as to why we are to walk in the truth. We are to walk in the truth first by speaking truth with one another. We are to walk in the truth second by refusing to indulge in anger towards one another. We are to walk in the truth third by working hard to bless one another. We are to walk in the truth fourth by seeking to encourage one another with our words And we are to walk in truth, fifth, by forgiving each other in any offense. We'll go through each of those points individually. With each of these points, Paul is going to give an exhortation and an explanation. He's going to give a command and he's going to give the reason for the command. And so listen for each of those as we go through each point. Let's look at this first point again. We walk in the truth first by speaking truth to one another. That's in verse 25. Look at that verse again with me. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The therefore, as Paul has used it frequently, calls to mind what was said in the earlier context. Again, he's emphasizing the fact that we have been given new life. And therefore, we should not be living as if we are still unbelievers. We should not be living in the way that we lived before we came to faith in Christ because we've been given new life in Christ. The old self has been crucified with Christ. The new self has come. We have put away the old man. We have put on the new man. Therefore, since all of that is true, the rest of what he says ought to follow. Each of the subsequent commands ought to follow. Again, here's the first part of this first command, put away falsehood. The word falsehood here means that which is a lie. It is not the truth. We tend to blur the lines between what is a lie and what is true. We talk about little white lies. We talk about bending the truth, but the Bible knows no such categories. The truth is the truth and a lie is a lie. The old self was characterized by lies. Remember in the last section, we talked about the darkness that is in the minds of the unbelieving. Their understanding is darkened because they're ignorant of the truth of who God is. They indulge in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, no matter if those desires reflect what is true or not. We referenced Romans chapter 1 last week, which spelled out in great detail the extent to which the mind of the unbelieving world falls into depravity. This is, in fact, a part of the judgment of God against them. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. Therefore, he gives them over to the depravity of their minds to pursue things that are even contrary to nature. These things are contrary to logic, to that which makes sense. It's contrary to biology. It's contrary to nature. And yet they pursue it with reckless abandon. That's because their minds are darkened. Because they've moved away from the truth. They're clinging to lies. As Jesus says in John eight forty four. they are of their father, the devil, who is a liar and the father of lies. But this is not so for the believer. The believer has been taught Christ, as he says in verses 20 and 21 of our passage. Our minds have been enlightened by the one who is the way and the truth and the life. We are in him who is true, 1 John 5.20. We have been created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. That's in our passage, Ephesians 4.24. Therefore, the truth ought to characterize the way we think and the way we live. Put aside falsehood, he says. Put aside lies. He goes on. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Put away falsehood, speak truth with your neighbor. That's the full command. The second part of this quote is a quotation from Zechariah chapter 8 where he says, speak truth, each one of you, with your neighbor. That's a quotation from the Old Testament. In that context, God made promises concerning the New Jerusalem. He said that the New Jerusalem will be called the City of Truth. God will dwell there with his people. He promises to bring them and to make them dwell in the City of Truth. He promises to be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. He says in verse 16 of Zechariah chapter 8, these are the things that you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace do not devise evil in your hearts against one another love no false oath for all these things I hate declares the Lord well Paul is picking up on the truth of this promise from Zechariah chapter 8 and applying it to the new covenant believers in the church God is a God of truth he has set apart this new man this new body of believers to reflect his truthfulness It has always been his desire to set apart a people who are zealous for the truth, and particularly zealous for the truth with one another. Put away falsehood. Speak the truth. Be a truth speaker. We are to speak truth, each one of us. It is a responsibility of each one of us to be truth speakers with one another. The word for neighbor really has to do with one who is close to you, one who is near to you. In this context, this has to do with believers, of course, as Paul will affirm in the next phrase, for we are members of one another. We have a responsibility before God. We're commanded to speak truth with one another. There should be no hint of lie or falsehood. Truth should characterize our dealing with one another. Sometimes the truth hurts, yes, and so we tend to shy away from the truth. It's easier to tell a lie or, again, to bend the truth because sometimes that's a safer thing for us to do. Sometimes we speak falsely by what we fail to say. How are you doing? We may ask one another. That phrase has become so worn with use, it's lost its effectiveness and now amounts more to a simple greeting than an actual question. Now response often makes that clear. I'm good. I'm fine. Everything's okay. And we immediately turn it around to the other person. I'm good. How are you? And that, you know, is supposed to suggest that we are caring about the other person and that we're concerned about their well-being when in fact we're really simply failing to speak the truth of how we're doing. Because we're trying to keep up some sort of pretense often. We don't want to say, I feel like trash. We don't want to say, I'm discouraged. I'm stretched thin a little this week. I'm in a lot of pain. Something is troubling me. We'd rather smile and say God is good and all is well and I'm super spiritual and nothing ever touches me. Even if that's false and disobedient to what God's word says. For others, it's the exact opposite. They overshare and perhaps exaggerate what is happening. They're always the victim of some issue or some perpetrator. Someone has always wronged them. The world is always against them. Again, we see those in social media who go out of their way to post about their stubbed toe. Or that their name is incorrectly spelled in their coffee drink. Or that their favorite grocery store is out of that particular item that they went looking for. All of our first world problems. They lie As if life is completely and totally out of control and maybe they've lied to themselves and it is that way. And they do that simply to receive sympathy and condolences from others. Still in other situations, it could be that we speak falsehood by not calling someone on their sin. Someone has acted foolishly or wickedly. We've been witness to it, perhaps they did something to offend us. Love ought to cover a multitude of sins. If it is something that love can cover, something with which you can overlook and forgive for the glory of God, then you should do so. We'll talk about forgiveness a little later. But if it is evidence of an ongoing sin problem in the life of the believer, one with whom you are a member, then it is your responsibility to speak the truth to them. We talked about that earlier in Ephesians, that we are to be speaking the truth in love. We have a responsibility to call them on their sin, not simply to try to avoid conflict. Well, again, generally we have the responsibility here before God to speak the truth to one another. It is not enough simply to not tell a lie. We must also positively speak the truth. And here again we have the reason. That was the command, but here's the reason. Because we are members of one another, we belong to one another. We are part of the same body. Again, we're a part of the same family, God's family. If you deceive a member of your own body into thinking that it is healthy, not only are you failing that member, but you're failing your entire body. If you step on a nail and somehow convince your foot that it's not bleeding, not only are you endangering your foot, but you're endangering the rest of your body. So also, if we fail... To speak the truth to one another and convince one another that there is no problem when there really is. We're failing the entire body, not just that one member. Walk in truth. We must put away the tendency to lie. We must speak the truth to one another. I wonder, is there someone with whom you must speak the truth to today? Well, we walk in truth by speaking the truth. Second, we walk in truth by refusing to indulge in anger against one another. Verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That is a command. The first part, be angry and do not sin, is another quotation from the Old Testament. This one from Psalm 4.4. In the context, it appears that David is praying to God with thanksgiving after someone has accused him of wrongdoing. His words in verse four are directed to his accusers. He says, "There, "Be angry and do not sin, ponder in your own hearts on your beds, and be silent." Paul is quoting these words here and picking up on one simple truth. Sometimes we get angry. Anger in and of itself is not necessarily sinful. It's what we do with that anger that becomes sin. Again, in our text, be angry and do not sin. Both of those commands must be taken together. There will be times when we become angry, but we must not sin out of anger. Paul further qualifies what will lead to sin. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. The difference between our anger or righteous anger and unrighteous anger, I think James clarifies God is at times pictured as being angry concerning sin and unrighteousness. We know that men are often pictured as being angry at times. James clarifies the difference in chapter 1 verse 20 where he says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The effect of man's anger will not lead to God's righteousness. Therefore uh, James says to us we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We need to be slow to anger. And again, Paul says that we need to not let the sun go down on our anger. The point is that we shouldn't let a day pass where our anger is still persisting. We shouldn't be quick to anger, but we also have to make sure that we don't allow our anger to fester. We don't allow it to build up. Don't hold your anger in about someone or something that has been done. Don't indulge in your anger. I've struggled with this personally in the past, just being honest. Someone has wronged me in some way, and I find myself days, weeks, months, perhaps even years later thinking about it and being agitated about it. I was convicted about this at one point when someone said, and I can't remember the exact quote, but basically they said, if you allow yourself to continue to be angry over something that someone has done, it's like giving them free room and board in your mind. And they're probably not even thinking about it anymore, but you're thinking about it like a fool, right? Just like angry about something that happened years ago. He says here, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, how do you do that, I wonder? I think part of that in, in these few points here that I'm going to give you, I think, apply to most of what we're saying this morning. But I think part of that involves remembering who you are. Again, we have been made new in Christ. Our life ought to be different. It ought to reflect the truth of who God is, who Christ is. Whereas prior to coming to Christ, we may have garnered a certain measure of respect from others for being the hot-headed kind of person, right? For being a type A personality. It is no longer so in Christ. We should not be known As that kind of person in Christ. We should be known for being gentle. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2. We covered this a number of weeks ago. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. And the bond of peace. That is what you should be known for in Christ. Remember who you are. Also think low thoughts of yourself. And high thoughts of God. You're not all that great anyway, right? We like to think we are, but we know that we sin against others. And God is greater than us, but he still forgave us. This is the truth of who God is. We ought to seek to be like God, and we ought to leave room for God's judgment. Paul says that in Romans chapter 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When we seek out of anger to avenge ourselves against others, we're trying to take the place of God. And we're failing to trust God to be just and to judge. Third, pray. Pray for help to forgive and to forget. Pray for help to be humble. Pray for the other person, whoever the other person is, whatever the situation is. Confess. Confess. You don't always need to confess every wrong thing that you've ever done or thought to someone else. Sometimes it's best to keep it to yourself. But if you have sinned against someone that they are aware of, you should seek forgiveness. If you're having difficulty with carrying anger, ask someone to pray for you. Now, this doesn't mean that you go to someone and you say, you know what so-and-so did to me? I need you to pray for me because they did this and they did that. And, you know, because that's just gossip, right? But we're not talking about that. We're talking about, hey, I'm really struggling in my heart with forgiving. I'm struggling with my, in my heart with anger. You don't need to know all the details, but I just need you to pray for me. And seek to reconcile quickly. If there is a wrong done or something needs to be dressed addressed, do it the same day. Don't allow the sun to go down on your anger. I love Paul's words in Romans chapter 12. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. You can't do anything about how the other person responds to you pursuing reconciliation, but you should pursue reconciliation and trust God with the rest. Why should we be angry but not sin by letting anger fester in our hearts? What is the reason he gives This commands anger is like gangrene. It will rot the integrity of relationships. He says in verse 27, give no opportunity to the devil. The devil is the slanderer. He is the accuser. He will use such things to drive a wedge within members of the body of Christ between relationships. Our goal is to preserve unity. His goal is to create disunity and wreak havoc. There's no better way to create disunity than to fuel anger, resentment, bitterness that's already in our hearts over an issue that should be forgiven. Paul says walk in the truth. Be angry, beloved, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Is there someone in the body of Christ, perhaps someone in your own home with whom you must reconcile today so that you do not allow another day to pass with your anger in your hearts? Because this is what you're commanded to do by your Savior. Walk in the truth by speaking truth with one another by refusing to indulge in anger against one another, and third, by working hard to bless one another. Verse 28, let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Someone is characterized by thievery. It is unclear exactly who Paul is referring to in this passage. It suggested that perhaps some of the day laborers had generally resorted to stealing things when they could not make ends meet. Or perhaps it was a reference to shopkeepers who cheated and extorted their customers. He will directly address both employers and employees later on in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. For now the point is that there are some who had made a habit of stealing. And Paul addresses them and reminds them that this should not be true of them. These kinds of things are perhaps more difficult for us to feel the effect of in our day, though certainly those who are directly impacted by it feel it. We may be tempted to think that it doesn't apply to us, but Paul's point is that stealing, taking that which belongs to you, ought not to be true of you as a believer. It can apply to those who physically steal things today. It can apply to those who, for example, steal time from their employees, not working as they ought to on social media or otherwise occupied. It can apply to those who steal from the government, cheating on taxes, avoiding taxes, or any of those kinds of things. Again, Paul's point is that it should not. Uh, this should not characterize us as believers. The truth of who God is, the truth of who Christ is, should characterize us, not our old way of living. Those who are known for this, for thievery, for stealing, should no longer steal. I could probably interject something here about This being the reason why Baltimore Ravens has such a fierce rivalry against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Because biblically we should no longer steal. I'll let you guys think about that one and have a chuckle later on. But But again, what is the opposite of stealing in this case? Paul says no longer steal but labor. Labor. That person should do honest work with his own hands. Don't steal, but work. Work and work hard. There's a lot that can be said about injustice, about unfair wages and the like, about poverty and how the system has failed many. But the reality is, when I look around even today, is that there are tons of jobs about. There are restaurants where there are short waiters, supermarkets that are short stockers and cashiers, offices that are short clerks and secretaries, etc., I think that everyone wants a six-figure job, but no one wants one where they actually have to labor. I am personally terrified of heights and small spaces, but I climbed up onto roofs and crawled through attic spaces to install satellite dishes on people's homes at some point in my life just to be able to provide for my family. I was not very skilled at it, but I learned it because that's what you do when you need to provide for your family. You do what you have to. I'm sure I've mentioned this passage before, but in Second Thessalonians 3.10, Paul affirmed, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. He says, we hear that some among you walk in idleness. They walk about not being busy with work, but as busy bodies. Such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly to earn their living. You should be willing to work hard in the Lord. You should be willing to labor, not to be a burden, but rather so that you can be a blessing. The command is to work and not to steal. The reason we see in the last part of verse 28, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is the reason why we ought to work hard and not steal. We should be contributing to the needs of others and not taking Again, this is the body of Christ. We ought to function as members of one another. We do that in part as we share our resources together in the body of Christ. That's a large part of why we give. We give not because it is the Christian thing to do to give 10%. 10% is not the standard. The standard is a cheerful, grateful, generous heart toward the Lord. One that sees the value in supporting the work of the Lord and who trusts in the Lord to supply their needs. Second Corinthians chapter nine, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness if your desire to give 10% just to check off the box and you've missed the point there is ministry to be done there is service to be done when we give to support the ministry we do so so that ministry may continue and abound for the glory of God and for the good of those who are ministered to you give not for yourself to say that you've done something good but you give for the benefit of others in the body of Christ. You ought to do this cheerfully, regularly, abundantly, and expectantly that God will take care of your needs. This is not name it, claim it theology. It's not prosperity theology. I'm not saying that God is going to bless you materially in any particular way if you give. That's not the point. The point is that God will take care of your needs. That's his promise. He will prove himself faithful as you trust him, And are faithful to give for the needs of others. That's the way it works. Paul says walk in truth. Do not steal. Work hard and do so for the good of others. Well again we walk in truth by speaking truth with one another. By refusing to indulge in anger against one another. By working hard to bless one another. Fourth we walk in truth by encouraging one another with our words. Verses 29 and 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up as fit for the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The phrase, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths is significant. First of all, in the original, the emphasis is on each word that you speak. It's not just in general. You shouldn't have corrupting talk. So every once in a while it's okay. No, the point is that every word that comes out of your mouth should be free from corruption. The idea of corrupting talk is also telling. The word itself means of such poor quality as to be of little or no value in a sense that something is spoiled or rotten. A further derivative of that is that which is bad or unwholesome to the extent of being harmful, particularly in a moral sense. One author said this, the adjective is used of rotten wood, withered flowers, and rancid fish. It generally refers to things or people who are worn out or useless, or that which is of little worth. This kind of talk should never come out of your mouths, believer. This is not only with regards to foul language. It does include foul language, but it also includes anything that is unwholesome or unprofitable. That which tends to spoil or make rotten in its effect. Cursing. Foul jokes. Harsh jokes. Jokes at someone else's expense which discourage or bring them down. Silly or empty talk that leads to unwholesome thoughts or conversations. Things that you say which spoil the conversation, spoil the thought, make the heart rotten. Those things should never come out of your mouth, believer. But only such words as are good for building up, as fit for the occasion, those that give grace to those who hear. The words that we speak should be good words. They should be words that build up, words that edify, words that strengthen, words that are fit for the moment, suitable for the need. In other words, those words should be carefully chosen, not carelessly thrown out. They should be carefully chosen. Each one of the words that come out of your mouth needs to be carefully thought over and chosen before you speak. This is probably one of the most difficult things for us to do. It's so easy to be careless with our words. It's easy to joke with our words. It's easy to be one who speaks their minds and so throws words out with little thought or consideration for how it will impact others. And it's not just the words that we say, but it's how we say them. It's the tone that we use, the inflection that we use. Sometimes a little sarcastic bite that we add. And that can make the difference between a word that is rotten or that leads to rot versus a word that edifies or builds up. It's particularly easy to do this with those with whom we are closest, our family, our friends, around the dinner table, in our living rooms, at school, around the water cooler, at work, here in the church. We often speak carelessly and don't even realize we're doing it. We do it for laughs, for our own personal laughs. We do it in jest. We do it expecting the other person knows, I don't really mean it, so... I remember very early on in our marriage, my wife and I were married right out of college. And, you know, when you're in college, you're surrounded by a bunch of post-teenage youths who generally think and act as if they're still in high school, right? You joke with each other. You jest with each other. You make fun with each other. Often you use sarcasm to punctuate your interactions with your closest friends. That's just what you do. Early on in our marriage, again, coming right out of college, I used to talk with my peers that way, and so at times I would speak with my wife that way. Nothing too significant in my mind, a joke here or there, a bit of biting sarcasm. This went on for a little while until she made clear to me at one point with tears how hurtful it was. And I just hadn't considered it. But her tears and her words reminding me that I am her husband and that she is my wife, that there is a relationship there that's more significant and requires a greater measure of care and I had to ask her forgiveness and I committed to taking care with how I spoke with her from then on that's not to say that I've been perfect at it but Paul's point here is that our relationship with each other in the body of Christ is more significant now that we're members of one another and therefore requires greater care with how we speak to each other you cannot just speak any way you want to if you are a Christian I like James's words in James chapter 3 he talks about those who should become teachers but I think most of this applies to all of us not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you all know that we, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, all able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into horses' mouths so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the course of life, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. We need to take care with our words. We need to make sure that we do not allow this world of unrighteousness, this fire, this little member which may set on fire the course of life go wild. We need to tame it. We need to take care that the words we say are words of blessing. We use these lips to bless our Lord and Father. We dare not use these lips to curse those made in his image. You remember the picture of Isaiah standing before God in Isaiah chapter 6. When he met the Lord face to face, what did he say? Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. This man of God, this prophet, who speaks forth the word of God, sees God in all of his glory, and he falls down as a dead man and pronounces a curse upon himself, not because of the things that he did, but because of things he said with his mouth because he felt the dirt and filth and wickedness of his tongue. And if we see the glory of God and we know the glory of God and we know the goodness of God and the truth of who Jesus is, we dare not use our tongues to bless him and curse one another. Paul's command here is that we refrain from speaking worthless words, but instead words which build up, words which are good there are two different reasons why he says again first so that it gives grace to those who hear we are vessels of grace to encourage one another with the words that we speak to one another our words are to give grace to encourage to help to enable to grow to abound again the opposite of being that which brings destruction or rot or discouragement the second reason is found in verse 30 do not grieve the holy spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption now, work backwards here. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We discuss the ministry of the Holy Spirit frequently in Ephesians. He is the one in whom we are sealed, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And also here, he is the guarantee, a deposit, indwelling believers, marking them as belonging to God until the day of our full redemption. The Holy Spirit is also instrumental in our new, new birth. He applies the work of Christ to our hearts, as we discussed in Ephesians chapter 2. Moreover, in Ephesians chapter 2, we saw that the Spirit is the one who unites us together in one body and creating this one new man, establishing us as a dwelling place of God. The Spirit works in and through gifted men to make known the mystery of God's will concerning Christ in chapter 3. He gives power to the church as he indwells us for the glory of God. Also in chapter three, the spirit is the one who unites us and unifies us. He gifts us to serve one another. According to the first part of chapter four, Paul reminds us that the ministry of the spirit is so intimately involved in our lives as believers that the very words that we say, if we, fail to give attention to our care for one another with those words, those very words may be a source of grief for the indwelling Holy Spirit. He is the one who has been given to unite us. So if we're speaking words that divide, it brings grief to him. Walk in the truth. Do not speak words that corrupt or ruin, rather speak words that build up and edify We ought to be striving to maintain the unity of the spirit, but when our words hurt, it threatens the unity of the spirit and it grieves the spirit of God who indwells us for the purpose of unity. Moving on to our fifth and final point, we walk in truth by forgiving each other in any offense. Verses thirty one and thirty-two. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The first part of the command, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. These are evidences of a response from someone who is wronged. You've been wronged, and it creates in you a sense of bitterness. That feeling of being scorned, of being poorly treated, unjustly treated. Wrath and anger are easily understood in this context. We've touched on the issue of anger earlier. Wrath has with it the connotation that your anger has grown to action. There's an intentionality, a desire to inflict pain. Retribution as a result of being scorned. Clamor is the idea of an outcry. You cry out verbally, loudly. Perhaps you blow up on the person. Your bitterness, anger, and wrath are no longer internalized, but rather they've grown to a boil, and a boil that is now overflowing. Slander is a word that we use, we sometimes translate blasphemy. We blaspheme one another at that point. It's not just that we've blown up about a situation or wrong that's been done, but our anger has outgrown our capacity to hold it in, and we use words to speak evil of one another. Malice. Malice has been defined as the quality or state of wickedness, baseness, depravity, a mean-spirited or vicious attitude or disposition. Your anger has moved beyond simply blaspheming the other person to outright wickedness. You seek to do them harm with evil intent. Paul is saying in our text that none of this should ever be true of a Christian, ever. There is no, absolutely no justification For a Christian to ever pursue someone with bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, nor any form of malice. You may be able to justify your actions to yourself as you think of how you've been harmed by someone. You may be able to justify your actions to the family and friend as you talk about how you've been harmed by someone. But Christian, you will never justify any measure of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, nor any form of malice. You will never justify before your God. Instead, the other part of the command, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving. Perhaps we can muster up some semblance of outward kindness toward others, but this goes deeper. He says we are to be kind. Our actions, our attitudes should align. We are to be kind with one another. Yes, in the context, someone has harmed you, having dishonored you, having hurt you. In any and every situation, this is how we are to be. We are to be kind. We are to be tender hearted. To be tender hearted is to have tender feelings for someone. To be compassionate toward them. It is to again not think of them with ill thoughts. But rather to actively pursue thoughts about them that are filled with compassion. And we are to be forgiving of one another. People say all the time I'll forgive but I'll never forget. We've heard that. We've perhaps said that right. But that's not a Christian saying. That's not a Christian mindset. The command do not be bitter, but the command is in this section be do not be bitter, but rather forgive. Why? As God in Christ forgave you. Why is it not Christian to say I'll forgive but never forget? Well God has forgiven us. He has removed our sins as far as from the east, as far as the east is from the west, Psalm one hundred three twelve. In case you didn't know, the two shall never meet. Moreover, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17, he says that our lawless deeds he will remember no more. Not only has he forgiven our lawless deeds, our sin, he's also forgotten them. Our sin will never be remembered by God ever again. That's the kind of forgiveness that we have in Christ. But we know that it's also more than that. Not only has God forgiven us and forgotten our sin, but he's also provided the means of our forgiveness in his son. And he did so not when we had our acts together, but when we were yet sinners, right? Romans chapter five, God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But it's more than that. Not only has God forgiven us, he has forgotten our sin. He's provided the means of our forgiveness by sending his son to die in our place to be our forgiveness He did this while we were sinners, but much more than that, God has done all of this, forgiving, forgetting, redeeming, while we were still sinners, being a God who's infinitely holy and righteous and good. He's not like us. We sin. We dishonor him. We sin against him. We do not deserve good. We should be surprised when anyone treats us good. God does deserve good. He is the giver of life. He is the creator. He is the one who sustains life. He deserves nothing but honor and praise and glory. But we scorn him. He is infinitely worthy of honor and praise and glory. So our sin against him is infinitely worthy of judgment. But in Christ we have been forgiven. We've been forgiven. Our sin has been forgotten. He's provided redemption for us. He did that while we were sinners. Do you get it? What right do we have to be bitter, wrathful, anger, clamorous, slanderous, malicious against another? What right do we have to be that way when an infinitely holy, righteous, and good God has forgiven, forgotten, provided payment for our sins and redemption for us while we were sinners? What right Do we have to scorn anyone? In case you have not trusted in Jesus as your savior, this is what it means to be a Christian. It is to trust in the Lord Jesus who was sent as payment for our sins. We who scorned a holy God, we who deserve his judgment, we who deserve to be completely rejected and abandoned by the creator but who himself has forgiven us in Christ. It is to trust in Jesus for that forgiveness. But you believer, if you profess faith in Christ, but do not do to others this very central element of the gospel message, that I'm afraid that the truth is not in you. Jesus has forgiven you. He has provided forgiveness for you. So also should you. You say it's not easy. Well, Jesus hasn't called us to an easy life. He's called us to follow him. And to follow him in faith. To do what he did. Are there any exceptions to this? Absolutely not. There are no exception clauses in this text. Again, as we think back about what it means to be a Christian, to what it means to be given new life, as we think back to Psalm 19, all of what God has done speaks forth his praise. Creation speaks forth his praise. His word speaks forth his praise. His redemption ought to speak forth his praise. And what greater way to reflect the glory of God than for those who are redeemed and forgiven to be Forgivers of others. And to trust God in that. We are to walk in the truth. We walk in the truth by speaking truth with one another. We walk in the truth by refusing to indulge in anger. We walk in truth by working hard to bless others. We walk in truth by encouraging others with our words. We walk in truth by forgiving each other in any offense. May the Lord make all these things true of us. Make he work in us that which is good for his glory and for our good together in the body of Christ. Father, thank you for today. Thank you again for your word which sanctifies us, your word which is true. We thank you for all of what you have done for us in Christ, including this new life that you have given us. We thank you for these lips, these mouths that you've given us and pray that you would help us with our mouths, not to curse, but to bless that we would use the tongue that we have to pour forth, not cursing toward others, but to walk in truth and to reflect truth and to pour forth blessing for your glory and for the good of all who hear us in Christ's name. Amen.